All right, guys, real quick, before we get into the show, I I just need to uh, let you know about some news that, that broke right before we are about to post this. So it's too late to go back and change the entire podcast, but the parliamentarian of the Senate, Elizabeth McDonough, has ruled that the $15 minimum wage does violate the bird rule. That means that it will not be part of the bill that the House is likely to vote on Friday or Saturday. That means there's gonna be pushback from the progressives, but you should know that before we go in to this episode, which begins right now. The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for Friday, February 26. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you from Oakland, California. Sun's getting higher, rising sooner. Went out walking the other day, shorts on. Uh, That's my kind of my kind of temperature. I'm excited to get back. I'm excited to get down to Texas. Just never take flip-flops off until it randomly turns into Detroit in January. But other than that, oh man, I'm excited to never wear pants again. We got a great show for you here today. Uh, I want to talk about Dr. Fauci. There's been a lot of like year anniversary of COVID stuff going around. And Dr. Fauci remains a very important figure. It was around about now when people started to learn who this dude is. And I just had some thoughts on who he is and who he isn't. And how we need to adjust our concepts of him. Because I think it would it would help us going forward. Because we're in a very vital moment of this crisis. We will also go into our mailbag, including questions about our Ron DeSantis segment last week. If I am overstating the effect that COVID will have on our society and a charge that I, Justin Robert Young, am either by supernatural or technological means harboring the spirit of Rush Limbaugh in my body since his death. For real. We also have an interview with writer Bill Scher about bipartisanship in Congress and the battle lines of the still unfolding COVID-19 relief effort. Uh, At the time of this recording, we don't know if it is passed. This will post on Friday. So they are supposed to vote on it in the House today. Might be tomorrow. Just know that that's when we recorded all this. Burr. 
This week, we mourned a half million dead Americans from COVID-19. That is obviously a grim and somber milestone. A half million people in our great country no longer with us because of this horrifying disease. On the bright side, a third vaccine. This, a one-shot solution that doesn't require a deep freeze from Johnson & Johnson, was approved for distribution by the federal government. In its trial, it, like its other two compatriots, has a 100% success rate against hospitalization and death. And this is very important because what you often read in the press are numbers like 66%, 80%, 70%. Those are the percentages of symptomatic infection, not hospitalization and death. And while obviously we need to be focused on containing this, and that's where symptomatic infection is very important, We can all agree that the reason why this has elevated to the kind of culture-crippling status that it's been at is because of the hospitalization and the death. So I repeat one more time for those in the back, each and every one of these vaccines are 100% through their trials effective against those outcomes. All of this is swirling as we barrel toward many milestones memorializing the beginning of our COVID year. One year ago, on February 25th, for example, we were told by one government official that the spread of COVID in America was quote-unquote inevitable based on how it had spread in other countries. That man went on to become a national icon and political lightning rod, Dr. Anthony Fauci the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. His plain manner of speaking, affable personality, and tireless desire to do media appearances, big and small, have become part and parcel with the America COVID experience. And with that, we do have good news to tell the world. Cases and deaths have plummeted over the last few weeks. Vaccines continue a brisk distribution nationwide. It is only as frustrating as it isn't instantaneous for all who want one. And with that, I would like to revisit the concept of Dr. Fauci, a man who became a villain to Trump supporters in an election year because they viewed him as another dithering D.C. creature undermining the 45th president in a crisis, and on the other hand, a modern shaman to Biden supporters who viewed him as the sole element of effective federal government, science with a capital S in the flesh. I think the best way to do this is for you guys to hear from my perspective who Dr. Fauci is and is not. And if we're going to start there, then I'm going to have to reject the premise that Dr. Fauci is good or bad. I don't find a lot of politicians good or bad per se. I I find them to be 
dangerous or less dangerous. I find them to be brave or cowardly, but I don't find them to be good or bad. For Fauci, I think we have somebody who is uniquely interesting because the things he does well, I think are very important. But our concept of him can warp that and possibly in some cases make his strengths a detriment. So let's start here. Dr. Fauci is an affable voice that can relatably give a medical perspective. We have spent a lot of time this year talking about the goods and ills of science communication, medical communication, science reporting and medical reporting, where the role of amateur quants factor into the idea that we can model out infections and model out uh, patterns that might inform lockdowns. Dr. Fauci has a very, very, very important role to play in this because he set a great template calmly with a smile and a we are not done with this personality explain in plain English what is an infection, what is an illness, and give some very broad top-line explanations about where we might be headed. In reviewing stuff for this segment, a phrase that I have read Dr. Fauci being quoted as saying is, this is going to get worse before it gets better. He loves using that. And I think that that's important. Because if you're saying this is going to get worse before it gets better. It's it's something that we can explain. We can understand. We can wrap our head around. Coming from a elevated perspective, that's important. The reason why Dr. Fauci became famous is not because he is the best scientist in the world. It's not because he is the best medical official in the world. And it's certainly not because He's perfect, which brings me to what Dr. Fauci is not, a font of perfect knowledge. One of the things that I hear a lot from folks who hate Dr. Fauci points out the fact that he was part of the chorus saying that, A, we should not be worried about COVID as it was making its way from China, and B, that we shouldn't worry about wearing masks. Both of these points are totally true because Dr. Anthony Fauci is not the oracle at Delphi. He is a government official who is there to give us the news. He can be wrong. He can be misled. He can misinterpret the data like anybody else. In fact, The only thing that we need to be focusing on from him is the fact that he does have some very important letters behind his name, which brings us back to something he is. He is an authority from a government perspective. And this is is more than just saying that we should take him seriously. 
Because I think that that the idea of understanding him as not somebody who's right or wrong, not somebody who is good or evil, but somebody who is representing a very large federal agency. In fact, the entire federal government is very important because he can't say certain things. He is going to be led to be probably more cautious at times. Or maybe if he views that the federal government is not going the way that he would like to go, he will be more aggressive. We need to understand that he is just not a wise man on top of the hill that's giving his best perspective. He's got bosses. He's got employees. He's got a larger responsibility than just being on the TV talking. And that's something that we need to factor in when we're listening to what he has to say. Which brings me to something he is not. Dr. Anthony Fauci is not someone we have to agree with. He is giving broad, general perspectives from the government POV. That doesn't mean that we have to think that he's always right. Indeed, as we just pointed out, sometimes he was really wrong. His perspective is not a guiding light for the world. He is just somebody who's been around long enough for us to understand his value. Which brings me to my final thing that Dr. Fauci is. He is a guy who's done this a long time. Dr. Fauci, obviously, for anybody who's done a little bit of a deep dive into his Wikipedia, made his bones by helping curtail the American AIDS explosion. He is a creature of D.C., and I, I don't say that in a negative way. He knows how to survive the American federal government. And that has its own worth. We need to understand that anything he's looking at, he's not scared by. Now, he might not interpret it the correct way, but he is a veteran and he deserves veteran status. So now that we've gone over what he is and isn't, I'd like to wrap this segment up by pointing out his best uses from my perspective versus his worst uses. And with this, I'm going to say specifically going forward from here. So forget what he's done in the past. I'm talking about beginning from February 26th on, right? One year after he said that coronavirus spread in America was inevitable, one year on, what's his best use? His best use, in my opinion, is a guy who explains why you should be able to work from home going forward if you feel sick. A real world explanation of where, where we are realistically with COVID and how we can effectively change our society for the better when it comes to spread of airborne illness. 
something that you can bring up to your boss because your boss knows who Anthony Fauci is. And if you're saying, yeah, you know, I, I, I think going forward, would you mind if we formalized in our policy that, that, that we can work from home, that, that we, it's better if we don't come in sick now that we've all seen this? You know, it's just something that we got from Dr. Fauci. That's great. Dr. Fauci is somebody that is a binding agent by way of being a celebrity for all of us to understand. He's he's a, a mascot. He's the jolly green giant. He's the brawny man. He's Spuds McKenzie. He's the Taco Bell Chihuahua. If we can use that to push forward best practices as we make our way out of this crisis and get back to a society that 2019 would remember, I think that would be an excellent use of Dr. Fauci's celebrity. Here, in my opinion, is the worst. Dr. Fauci is not the man who gives the order on when society returns. And this is where all of this kind of wraps up. Because Dr. Fauci came out this week and said, hey, you know, we're probably going to be wearing masks until 2022. I don't know exactly when we're going to be like getting back to normal. We should probably hold off on opening theaters until the fall. And that's fine. He can have that perspective. And we should feel okay about not agreeing with everything that he says. Because Dr. Fauci is not the man who makes this call. We are all making this call together. And there is is more to life than his perspective. He's a valuable part of it. He's a big part of this mosaic. And again, to have a a countrywide famous voice that can communicate medical best practices and put into layman terms complicated concepts, God, that's invaluable. We shouldn't think that we are devaluing this person just because we are not investing him with the ability to open and close our society. We are not disobeying Dr. Fauci if we go to a graduation party in the spring. We are not putting a frown on Fauci's face if we dare go see a movie this summer. He's a guide. A guide we should pay attention to and a guide we should be thankful that he is as effective as he is, but a guide nonetheless. At least, that's what I think Dr. Fauci is best at. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. You can always send me an email. In our mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Varen writes, After hearing your Rush Limbaugh impression, I was hoping for more, but I understand that shows change and evolve. Rush reading rap lyrics is funny at just the thought of it. However, 
During your Wednesday, February 24th show, I noticed that you were talking about the Republicans' lack of a mounted counteroffense to the Democrats passing the stimulus COVID relief via reconciliation. I could swear I started to hear your inner Rush Limbaugh uh, make its way out of your mouth. Does Rush's soul now reside in your conjuring of Republican frustration POV? Are you trying to sneak him back in? I'm curious if anyone else has noticed this or if I'm alone. Uh, no, I don't hear it. No, not at all. Sorry, man. <laughs> you want to know what's funny? So, I mean, I, I've, I, I said in that uh, segment, uh, in, in the Rush segment, that I... Uh, Again, when I wanted to get into one mic radio, there was, I mean, there's like a few people that I can even name off the top of my head. When I was a kid, I listened to Neil Rogers. He was local in South Florida. He was a one mic radio show. Although, oddly enough, I, I never really listened to him on the radio. He had a television simulcast on a short-lived station called Whammy, Whammy in Miami, that uh, uh, I listened to or watched his show on. So that's a one mic influence that I had. Other than that, you know, I, I I listened to a little bit of Jim Rome. Welcome to the jungle. Uh, but uh, I was never really in that market. Rush Limbaugh was when I wanted to get into it. He was the person that I listened to. And so no matter what, I think that there is an element of that cadence, the, the, Understanding, and, and if we're going to get really wonky, the secret to one mic radio is hiding your pauses. And if you do it right, if you do it right, you are able to stretch out something that would otherwise be two minutes into 20 minutes without it seeming like you are taking, uh, you know, a ton of time between. Or when you do have a long pause, it's for dramatic effect and you can use it to your advantage and you can build momentum if you shorten your pauses and eventually go on a little bit of a rant because now you're building up momentum. So there's like a, a couple little tricks that I picked up from him specifically, from Rush specifically. That being said, there is only one person for whom has to my face told me that I sounded like Rush Limbaugh and that is my cousin Tomas who uh, uh, was listening. He's, he's from, you know, he was raised in Brazil. And he was just like, one day he's like, my cousin, you sound like Rush Limbaugh. I thought that was pretty funny. So no, I am not harboring the soul of Rush Limbaugh since he died, but there is a, a certainly an element of my cadence that, that I think any one mic person who does it well is kind of doing an impression of Rush, of, of Rush Limbaugh because this art form is not super old. You know, if you're even going to look at all of One Mic Radio, and this goes back to like golden age of radio, Paul Harvey stuff, you know, it's only a couple hundred years old, right? Like a hundred years and change. There is There is something elemental to it that I think we are attracted to because it is kind of like a a uh, disassembled version of like around the campfire storytelling. 
But, you know, love him or hate what he said in the cadence, but the cadence is important. And I think, you know, there's not a lot of people who can say that they don't, on some level, begrudgingly or not, owe a debt of gratitude for the path that he tread. Rush Limbaugh, that is. Nick writes, I appreciate the sincerity and heartfelt messages about having to slow down uh, your newsletter. We'll talk about that in a second, actually. Uh, have you heard if your house went unscathed during the Texas winter fiasco? I'm hoping so. Uh, there's more to this letter, but I'll answer that now. Uh, yeah, so uh, we signed closing documents on a house. or not closing documents. We signed a contract on a house in Austin, and then all of a sudden Austin turned into Minneapolis. Best as we know right now from the seller, everything is good. Hunky-dory. Nick continues. Thank you for everything you give us. You and the morning stream are easily the best value Patreons that I follow. So uh, uh, maybe come April when you're all settled, you and Scott can do a one-off unfriend me about how moving sucks. And Nick also in this email went into how bad moving sucks. Yes, indeed, moving sucks. In fact, right before I recorded this, we just got a price estimate on what it's going to cost us to move and whether or not it makes sense for us to strike all of our furniture and just buy new stuff when we're down there. Hey boy. Steve writes, it's uh, 78 degrees Fahrenheit here in Dallas. The great freeze is over. I hope you got something outside the city of Austin area. Someday I hope to make, uh, hope to make it down to the seven acre Schwood uh, so I can do a PX3 meetup as well. I'm glad you mentioned Brian, Steve, because Brian had a great idea that we are going to bring to PX3 this March. Oh, we're going to do a bracket. We're going to do a bracket and it's going to be pretty intense. I love it. Uh, I will see you guys in March for that. And and yes, we, uh, we're not outside Austin city limits. We are inside Austin city limits. But we're very happy with our location. Ron writes, during a major national disaster, it's understandable that legislature and courts would, in good faith, hand over absolute control to executives for some period of time so that the disaster can be dealt with efficiently and with a minimum of politics. I believe, though, that there are some lessons to learn from this pandemic. One, executives handed absolute power will eventually become absolutely corrupted. Cuomo, Newsom, no doubt others have betrayed their office by making decisions based on factors other than science and the desire to make everyone whole as soon as possible. Two, there are many ways to extend the timeline of an emergency. We started with a 15-day lockdown that stayed in place for a freaking year. And there will always be a new excuse for extending the emergency, new virus strains, etc. Three, the massive, Indirect impacts of extreme executive action will not be factored into decisions. After all this, here's what I've come to believe. The legislature and courts should establish an absolute deadline on the period of time an executive can ever have absolute power. 60 days makes sense to me. And then in only the most extreme circumstances. In no case... Should they ever be allowed to extend this? If elements of the emergency will extend beyond 60 days, 
then it's the responsibility of the executive and legislative branches to establish guidelines and support for local government and the citizens. What they cannot do is execute absolute power over businesses and individuals indefinitely with no clarity or boundaries to their decisions. Ron Weller, I, I appreciate your absolutist perspective here. I do think that there is some reality that needs to be injected into it, and, and that is when citizens are in a crisis, they very often are not thinking of larger ramifications. The general call from the public is usually something along the lines of, who's fixing this? So where I think we might better spend our energy instead of putting a, a line in the sand on how long you should have absolute power, which again, we also need to define like Gavin Newsom doesn't have absolute power, but he does have kind of roundabout power. If that makes sense. He, you know, he, he doesn't have constitutional power to shut down businesses, but he does have an ability to declare curfews and stuff like that in a state of emergency. So I, I think if we get into a situation where we have to have the legislator vote on whether or not we're still in a state of emergency, maybe that does some of it. But ultimately, I, I think it's just going to be hard when you're in situations like this. Although maybe that's, that is an argument for having an absolute rule. Mike writes, I was listening to Wednesday's PX3 interview with my fiance, who likes to argue with the radio for some reason, and she had some contentious points about Florida and the COVID numbers. Just wondering what your thoughts were. Number one, unemployment. Florida numbers are low, but that's because it's difficult to collect unemployment through Florida's antiquated system. Also, a large part of the workforce are service industry who may not qualify or are not being counted. Well, Mike's fiance, number one, it's lovely to meet you. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that we had such a argument last week. I, I, I hope that my calming, soothing voice will be able to make this a more congenial experience. As far as unemployment goes, I, I'm, I'm with you that Florida's unemployment site is antiquated. I would counter with, I, I don't know if anybody would immediately have a state they could point to to say, ah, the super user-friendly unemployment system of blank state is a great example of how this is different in Florida. I will quibble with your... Uh, with your point that service industry people do not qualify for unemployment. They do. If you are a waiter and your restaurant uh, got shut down, you can go get unemployment. Number two, deaths per million. Many Florida residents actually reside elsewhere and are registered in Florida for tax purposes. Since they're not there to do their numbers count toward the population, but not toward deaths if they die elsewhere. Mike's fiance, I think you're reaching here. I think you're reaching. I sure there are people who quote unquote live in Florida for tax purposes, but actually spend most of their time in 
Long Island or uh, Philadelphia or or anywhere else in the northeastern corridor, uh, uh, and then and then live in Florida, quote unquote. I mean, like, there's many snowbirds who do that from uh, Quebec, but I don't think that that's significant. You know, you you can you can attack Florida's death numbers for not being you know, corralled effectively. You could cross the line into saying that their numbers are fraudulent and that they are actively covering them up, at which point I would love to see evidence there. Uh, I don't trust any government count. We have to we have to use that as the operating theory, but I am open to any and all uh, uh, possible corruption charges there. I, I just... Point me in the direction and I'll and I'll and I'll go look at those claims. But I don't think that the amount of people who are registered for Florida citizenship but don't live there is 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 enough to kind of put the thumb on that scale in an effective way. I hope that that was good, Mike's fiance. Peace be with you. Matt writes, what I don't understand about the position of listeners like Cable Ninja who last week wrote in about dangerous ideas, is who enforces that? Because what free speech absolutists like yours truly argue is that the government should not police which ideas are dangerous and which ideas are allowed. I don't know how you can argue for giving that power to the government knowing even a tiny bit of history. Speech restrictions by the government are always going to end up oppressing the powerless. It happened with hate speech laws and civil rights leaders, and it will happen again. A robust defense of free speech is what makes our country great. And finally, Sean writes, there are going to be cultural ramifications of COVID after you and I are gone? Justin, this sort of certainty about how long our memories are as a society strikes me as bizarre. I remember back in 2001 reading an article slash opinion piece. Uh, I remember it being from a Jesuit priest and author Andrew Greeley, Greenlee, uh, but I've been looking for it and can't seem to find it. That took the opposite side in a time where everyone presumed life had changed forever and that it would never be like it was before 9-11. And he gave as an example to why that wouldn't be the case, the 1918 Spanish flu. He was born in the shadows of the last global pandemic and every adult who lived through it knew multiple people who got severely sick and likely more than a couple died. Despite how widespread the pandemic affected people, the author of the article didn't notice anything that could have been related to the 1918 flu and posited that the same would be true about 9-11 in following years. My kids have been born further from 9-11 than Greeley was from 1918. And I would suspect that there is no perceptible lingering difference from 9-11 in our day-to-day lives, just as there was no lingering difference in the day-to-day lives after the Spanish flu has experienced. So just throwing this out there, I don't think the pandemic will have as lasting of an effect as you believe it is certainly having because as Battlestar Galactica has taught us, this has all happened before and it will happen again. Sean, Sean, Sean. I have half a mind to fly to your home wherein I will be stopped by the TSA and go through heightened security that still hasn't gone away since 9-11. 
but I don't have the time. So maybe I'll just text you where my communications can be legally surveilled if I'm declared a terrorist and I could lose my rights and be thought of differently in terms of uh, uh, being a good standing citizen because of 9-11 and the Patriot Act. And that's before we get into cultural attitudes about people from the Middle East and on and on and on. Sean, quite frankly, man, I, I do think that things changed a lot during 9-11. Uh, and, and what your email illustrates to me is how quickly we adjust. It's not that things don't change. It's that we keep on trucking. And that's part of what makes us human. We're not here to, you know, spend too much time worrying over spilt milk. And sometimes that's bad, right? Sometimes uh, the fact that we can adjust means that the temperature on things that are truly bad does get turned up one degree at a time and we don't notice it. But I got to heartily disagree with you. And I will specifically use your point against you. Indeed, things changed after 9-11. And by the way, indeed, things changed after 1918. The, the difference is that there are, are fewer ways that we can look at exactly how life was before and after. But I think that there are going to be perceptible changes. Now, will they be profound? No, maybe not. I don't think that like the pillars of our society are going to change because of COVID. But in 20 years, are we going to point back to something and say, oh, yeah, that was a COVID thing? Yes. Yes, we will. If even just to say that the Lakers winning the championship over the Heat is a total fraud case. And the Heat should have won. But the Lakers benefited from being in a bubble. See? I'll never let that go. If you would like to email us, you can do so at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. As uh, many of you have already read because you subscribe, there are going to be some changes to our dear free political newsletter. Uh, we're no longer going to be a five-day-a-week news digest, but... That does not mean I will not be gracing your inbox. No, no, no. We'll be going to a once-a-week format with some of my longer, more fleshed-out thoughts on the world of politics. This I'm very excited about because it gives me the ability to flesh out ideas and hone my writing beyond a daily deadline. I, I swear, I swear, I swear I'm a good writer. <laughs> I did get a degree in it, and I'm, and I'm excited to kind of flesh that out. I, I'm not going to lie to you guys. Part of this uh, decision is because I'm moving and a daily obligation is just something that prevents me from putting more time into all the other stuff that I, that I have going on. But I am also very energized and excited by everything that's happening in the world of email right now. Some of my favorite things to read and I have not been this excited since the, the blog revolution of the aughts are on Substack emails. I'm paying money to people that are writing great, great emails. And some of them are daily. Like I, I signed up for the Punchbowl email. That was the old Politico email writing 
crew that now have established their own thing, and they do a great job. But also, uh, our, our previous guest on this show, uh, Polymath, Matthias, he writes a great numbers email. And I'm excited by that. And the best versions of those take a little bit more time than the hour and a half, two hours I was I was putting into the, uh, the email every day before. So that's the direction we're going to be going in. I'm excited. I am. I am very excited for this change. And I hope you can join me at px3newsletter.com. Now, I know I've been on the internet long enough to know that any change is something that people are, are going to uh, find anxiety toward, right? The internet is nothing, uh, anything successful on the internet that is, is, is always regular. So if you would like a substitution for my daily digest of news stories, I greatly, greatly recommend that you head on over to my Discord, bit.ly slash jury discord, J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D, and you find the PX3 Stories channel. This is where I wound up pulling most of those headlines anyway, and I will continue to put in stories that I find into that channel that I would have otherwise put into the newsletter. So there we go. px3newsletter.com is where you go to sign up. We're doing a little bit of a change, but I think it's going to be for the better. Thanks again, folks. Our guest today is a political writer who has appeared in Washington Monthly, Politico, and Real Clear Politics. His latest article is about bipartisanship, and he's a nice guy to boot. Welcome back to the podcast, Bill Scher. Welcome back, Bill. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you again. I know, I know. You were you were definitely a fan favorite last time, and I, I feel like we are in... Very interesting waters now. You wrote a piece uh, for Today News about bipartisanship and where it is now. We, we've obviously spent a lot of time, I think, on the surface level of Joe Biden goes out for his inauguration. He talks a lot about one country. We no longer want to be divided. That's the repudiation of, of Trump that is the most palatable across all uh, sectors, but what does it really look like in terms of legislation? And and let's start with where you start in your piece, and that is with COVID relief, because it looks as if the Democrats are on route to pass the first non-bipartisan COVID relief legislation since this pandemic has wrecked the country. But it is popular. So what is the Biden strategy here? Well, I mean, I can only tell you what I, I can see from the outside. I, I don't have my ear inside the White House walls. But the point of my piece in todaynews.vote was that bipartisanship can happen. Yeah. There are, uh, there are incentives on both sides for it to happen. Doesn't mean that's going to happen. Uh, 
I do think that COVID relief presented probably the best opportunity to, you know, have a thaw yeah. to get past the old polarization and to say, hey, you know what? We actually can have good faith negotiations here. One, Biden can do a fair amount through what's known as budget reconciliation. This is one of the end arounds to neutralize the filibuster. You can't do it for everything, but you can do it on certain things. I won't get into those weeds right now unless yeah. you really want me to. Um, but he can do it for this particular bill by and large. Uh, but he has a long-term interest in being able to find 10 Republicans for items that he can't do reconciliation with. Things like voting rights, yeah. probably immigration. Um, so he wants to be able to find a working relationship. Republicans, as as you just noted, are facing a, a COVID relief bill that's very popular. Yeah. It's, uh, depending on what the poll wording you see, it's, it either has majority support among Republicans or close to. Uh, so there's some incentive to not be on the wrong side of a bill that most Americans want. And if you can, you know, politicians try to look around the corner. Yeah. You know, so that's popular today might not be popular a year from now. But we're in the, the nadir of the pandemic. We will probably get out of it. At some point, hopefully, yes. We will probably have an economic rebound once we get out of it. And your know, Republicans can huff and puff and say, well, that would, ha- that would happen anyway. You don't need this bill for that. But to the average voter, they probably won't make that distinction. They'll say, hey, Democrats, to a, to a person, pass this bill, help me through a tough time, may whatever suffering less so, and now we're in good shape. And you, Mr. and Ms. Republican, didn't help. Do you want to take that risk? Why not just get on the good, get on the winning side and go fight Biden on something else? So if both sides see Republicans have a short-term interest in being on board, Democrats have a long-term interest in finding 10 Republicans, you can have a meeting of the minds. Now, it may well be, and I think indicators point in this direction at the moment, that Democrats are saying, hey, I don't have to bend over backwards for you. I, we, we have the votes most likely. If you want to come on board with our 1.9 trillion bill, you're welcome. Yeah, but I'm not going to bend over backwards. But you for will you. get nothing. You will get you will get no concessions. If yeah. if you want to do it, it's because you are looking for our clout, not because we need you. And Republicans may be concluding if you're not going to try to solicit our support and hear us out, well, we are a fairly polarized country, and most of us can probably win a re-election. Uh, without bending over backwards for you, and we'll take our chances by locking arms. I mean, so that may be where we go from here. Um, and then the question for on the Biden side is, are you hurting your ability to find bipartisanship in those other areas where you will definitely need the 10 Republicans because you didn't break the ice when you had you know, lower hanging fruit? Let, let's stay here on COVID relief for a second, because I, I don't think that anything in Washington gets done unless somebody's scared, like the, especially bipartisanship, especially when things are polarized. Like we can we can think about the halcyon days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan all we want. But the reality is that nobody's really going to do something unless they think they're going to get burnt if they don't do it or if they go the other way. And the way that you generate leverage in general, I know this is something that I've seen you talk about on 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 Twitter is the Republicans have to make a counter argument. They have to they have to state why this is a bad bill. And 
we are very late in this process. The, 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 the train has pretty much left the station. The only way that it seems like it's going to be derailed is if there's some kind of internal mechanical failure within the Democratic machine. And it's only now that we have Mitt Romney going to the safest of all Republican safe spaces, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, to talk about any kind of coherent reason why this is not a good bill, for which I think, at least in terms of conservative thought, they have a case for it to say that that this is paying too much to states and cities uh, more than their budget shortfalls call for, and it is coming at the cost of any kind of direct benefit or more of a direct benefit to the people. Uh, do you think that there is bipartisanship if there is no cleavage of thought or a, a leverage created from one side to another? Yeah, you only get bipartisanship if there is self-interest, if there's rational self-interest. Yes. And people on both sides can find those leverage points to make a case, hey, this is in your interest to help me. It's not going to be out of the goodness of your heart or you're putting country above party. It's because you think it's good for you and your party. Yeah. Uh, and look back to 2009, Barack Obama's first month in office. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Recovery Act, the stimulus was the first thing out of the box. It was January 28th, 2009, when Rush Limbaugh called the stimulus the porculus. Yeah. And Republicans, they already had a vote on the Recovery Act that week and no Republican votes in support in the House. Obama started to get on the defensive and the following week gave a blistering speech to the House Democrats, very sarcastically mocking Republicans for, for, for being heartless. Uh, and they did squeeze out the Republicans in the Senate for the final version of the, of the bill. Uh, it passed uh, in mid-February and Obama signed it on February 17th. And by February 19th, you had the Rick Santelli Tea Party rant yep. on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange on CNBC, which became a rallying cry for the next two years. Tea Party organizations cropping all, all over the place fueling a right-wing backlash that gave Republicans the House in yeah. 2010. Now, we are a month in the Biden administration. Nothing like that has occurred. We are just starting to see the bits of a Republican counter-argument with the Romney op-ed, as you mentioned, where he called the, the, the Biden plan a clunker. Uh, you have a House uh, Majority Whip team call, calling this Pelosi's Payoff to Progressives Act. But they're a month behind the curve here. And that's what the public opinion is through the roof, three quarters of the country for it, because there's been no counter-argument up to this point. Now, polls can change. Things might shift here. But you know the House votes on it this week, and the Senate probably relatively soon. And to the, to the other point you made, what could change this, this glide path is someone like a Joe Manchin yeah. raising his hand and saying, I'm not letting you do this on 50, at least not yet. You need to talk more to my friend Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and hear them out. I think Mitt Romney made some good points in that op-ed that you should listen to. Uh, I, I'm not predicting he's going to do that, but yeah. that is that. at this point, someone's going to have to force the bipartisan issue. And, and so it's not going to be because of the macro leverage points, because those arguments are not, are not being made right now. It's internally, you don't have the votes without me. Yeah. And you have to, and, and you know, Manchin is an interesting character because he's not easily pressured one way or the other. He can, he's his own person. 
Uh, and if he doesn't feel like doing something, if he doesn't want to vote for a near attendant for OMB director, he just doesn't have to, and you have to deal with it. So we'll see if he wants to throw his weight around him that way. So far, he's made a little bit of noise, but hasn't really thrown down the gauntlet yet. I feel like everything's waiting, and and at, at the point that we record this, it'll probably be done by the time it airs, but uh, at the point <laughs> that we record this, uh, all eyes are still on the Senate parliamentarian, and I feel like that's at least what, what I talked about in, in, in our episode on Wednesday. That, to me, is when the Democrats face kind of their final crisis point on this of deciding who they have to soothe, who's, you know, uh, who need whose feelings need to be made better. And then if it is ruled that it can be that it doesn't violate the bird rule, that this $15 minimum wage, which is what the parliamentarian is going to rule on, then how about this life is Joe Manchin? How how much is Joe Manchin willing to go to the mats? Because it, to your point, if it's the Republicans that have to worry about not voting for something that is at least diametrically opposed to their interest philosophically or their voters interest philosophically. What does that mean for Joe Manchin when he's the one derailing it on his own side? Well, no Manchin has two potential complaints here with $50 minimum wage. Yeah. One is that he doesn't, doesn't think it should be 15. He thinks it should be 11. Yeah. So that, that is, a, that is a separate issue from this whole parliamentarian issue. The parliamentarian thing is now we have to get into budgetary. Let's go. Let's go. No, and, and, and we, we, have, we, we, we already have done, done an explainer on, on, on the bird rule, but, uh, Oh, you uh, have. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so we, so yeah, so we know that the, the, the parliamentary uh, parliamentarian is ruling on whether or not that is germane enough to the mm-hmm. budget for it to be uh, uh, pa- passed through based on that rule. So Manchin has said repeatedly, vociferously, that he will not let the bird rule be stretched to its limit. That the bird rule is there. I mean, bird rule is named after Robert Byrd, who was Manchin's predecessor in the Senate yeah. from West Virginia. And he has said that he is going to honor the bird legacy, that the, that the bird rule is there as a as a sibling to filibuster to ensure that there is not a straight majority rule of the Senate. Uh, And now, as you may have already said, Kamala Harris as vice president, as presiding officer of the Senate can overrule the parliamentarian on a particular point. You know, you say minimum wage is, is not allowed. I hereby say that it is. Yeah, but that is that is un, unlikely at this point, right? It doesn't seem like like the White House I mean, is necessarily on the side of the of the fifteen dollar thing. I I assume nothing. Let, let's yeah. just say she. Let's does. assume. She okay, let's it. assume. Yeah, that ruling would can be sustained with only forty one senators. So Manchin can't stop that. She he can't stop Harris from overruling the parliamentarian. Sure, but he can say, "Hey, you put this in. You you have tried to nuke." The bird rule, which is a de facto nuking of the filibuster, you have lost my vote for the final bill, and yes. you need his vote for the final bill. So that's what at least he has the power to do that. Some people think that Manchin wouldn't force the issue to that degree. Some people think that Harris won't force the issue. I can't say, but those are the that's that's the push and pull here. So there's that parliamentarian question: Are you allowed to do this at all? Yeah. And if Manchin um, lost that fight, is he going to say, "Hey"? I, I'm not going, I lose, I mean, that the, the parliamentarian says this is allowed. Parliamentarian says you're allowed to do minimum wage. Manchin can still say, well, I don't want you to do 15. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to negotiate on, on, on that point. And, and, th- and this whole issue is really not 
directly about pandemic relief. It is a longer term agenda item for Democrats. Biden has suggested, hey, if I don't get it in this bill, no big deal. I'll get it. I'll try to get it down the line. Yeah. Um, so you know, they can have a they can have a blood they can have a blood feud over minimum wage and still pass the rest of the bill. Manchin can say, look, you're worse not doing this, but I'll vote for the rest of the package, and they might well do it that way. So this may not be the thing that trips up the entire bill, but it's still something that will require some delicate negotiation potentially. I think it would be safe to say that this is the most significant thing remaining, though, that could cause the kind of dissension that could cause a major breakdown, right? Is there anything else on this scale? Nothing that is evident right now. Yes. Yeah. But does Manchin's look, one of Romney's points in his op-ed was 1.9 trillion is too big, and I have proof. The Congressional Budget Office says that seven hundred billion dollars of this doesn't get spent in twenty twenty one. Yeah, so you can't tell me this is about the urgency. This is about your longer term agenda. Now, there's I know there's at least one counterpoint to that, which is part of that money is school money, and that is over several years. And the White House has said, hey, schools have to budget long term. They they can't just hire people for this year. Uh, and not worry about the following years. And we want more people for smaller class sizes, for more pandemic mitigation. Yeah. Uh, we need to have a longer term strategy. So I'm not saying Romney has the ultimate argument here, but Manchin could say, hey, Mitt Romney's got a point. I'm not in love with 1.9 trillion either. You have to come down off this number or you don't have my vote. I mean, that would be, that would be a much, much bigger deal if he did that, a bigger deal than minimum wage because it really cuts to the heart of what, the package is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, has, has been, this is the kind of package that Mitch McConnell, when he ran the show, uh, uh, I think much more than Donald Trump, even when he was president was fighting against, it was always about the number. It was always about the, the, the top line number, even, and that's the, the funny thing about the polls is that to me, the polls are basically all some version of, do I get a check and how big is the check? <laughs> Right. Like, do I get a check? Yes, I'm for it. Uh, is it a large check? I'm enthusiastically for it, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, the, the average people, I don't generally get the sense, and, and this is me making an assumption, but I don't generally get the sense that they know the budget shortfall of uh, Chicago versus Sacramento versus Des Moines uh, you know, versus New York City, which is where the biggest fight in Congress has been about with any of these bills like like that's that's really what the dividing line has been if you were able to cut out even just direct checks to the people i feel like you'd be able to have a bipartisan consensus during the trump administration when and when mcconnell was running the show and certainly now well you know, there's some insider squeamishness about the checks because they feel it's not money well spent it's not targeted it's not going to the people who need it most yeah it's it, 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 it does cost a lot to give checks to nearly everybody. And so yeah. you're, you're, you're rating the kitty for doing that. So that's why the initial mansion Romney compromise in December did not include those checks. It yes. was when Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley forced the issue uh, that McConnell said, Hey, I'll throw these guys this bone. Uh, so Democrats in Georgia can't hit us over the head with it. Yeah. Uh, and now Biden, I, and I think everybody's realized, wow, those checks are really the grease that makes this thing popular. And, th and that's a non-negotiable for Biden now. Uh, and that should that should be a red flag for Republicans. I mean, you look at the things, you know, look at the, 
1981 tax cuts. Look at the 2001 tax cuts. I mean, that's sort of the Republican flip side of Democratic checks. It's straight up money, money to you. Money, money in the pocket <laughs> of the average American. Look what I did. Right. Uh, a lot of Democrats in 1981 voted for the Reagan tax cuts. 37 Democratic senators, over 130 uh, Democratic House members. Uh, and when you got to 1982, it wasn't the hot topic of discussion because the lines were blurred there. Democrats could run on, uh, Reagan wants to cut Social Security, we're still having a hangover from the recession, tax cuts weren't being used as a club to beat them up with, and they had a very good, Democrats had a good midterm in 1982. Uh, 2001, not as many Democrats supported the tax cuts, but some did. And it was a relatively good year for Republicans for a midterm, but because almost nobody lost seats at all. It was kind of a status quo election. So there were a couple of Democrats who voted for the tax cuts in the Senate that lost, but some of them who voted for them won. And on the whole, most of them won. Uh, and it's just a reminder that if you're in a purplish area, yeah. And you're and you're on the wrong side of a popular issue. Giving me money <laughs> makes you that, more popular. That could be dicey. So yeah. I, I think the Republicans should think twice about their current strategy. But again, you know, polarization is a hell of a drug, and they they may not be willing to uh, break ranks at the end it, of the day here. And it, and, they, and we'll see if they pay a price for it down the line. It just is is mind blowing to me that they are not putting a very tight circle around money for politicians and and we're on the side of money for you, be it however they want to do that or, you know, a, a, a pledge to open schools or something like having the money that goes to the schools means they open. Like, just th there are issues that they have. And I guess here's, let, let me lead into the, back into the larger bipartisan conversation. If we understand that there can be no bipartisanship unless there's self-interest, is there a problem that the Republicans very clearly are balkanized right now? There doesn't seem to be a lot of cohesion between some of the more populist elements of the party with the Susan Collins. Now they're calling themselves the G10, which is just such a hilariously dorky uh, uh, DC nickname. Uh, it doesn't seem like they can come up with a coherent strategy because they are not coherent right now. Do they have to find a common thread before the Democrats even take them seriously enough to compromise their, their position. Well, well, the, well, the division in the Republican party should be an opportunity for Democrats to exploit. And I think they to are go, to go to the G 10. Yeah. And say, okay. Look, yeah. Kick these QAnon Trumpy Republicans to the curb, kick the, you should be the future of this party. You need to get the party more to, to reality and rationality. And it starts by being serious, good faith governing partners. Uh, don't don't lock arms with with these with these nut jobs. Yeah. That's not good good for you and your party going forward. And there's certain people like like a Rob Portman or Bill Burr or Pat Toomey who are retiring, so they're they're not worried about their own election, but presumably they care about the future of their party. And I, I th you would think there's an argument to make that this is for the long term interest of your party to shed the nihilism of the of the of the Trumpian party. Now, I don't know what kind of pleas Biden has made to them directly, or how well they're they're incorporating that that kind of thinking as it stands. This is becoming a point of unity 
amongst Republicans say, yes. hey, we might disagree about Trump. Yeah. We're going to agree that Biden and the Democrats are overreaching here and we're going to rally around that point. And I, and I, I would think there'd be some point that de- Republicans would eventually rally around. I would not have assumed it would be free money for people. <laughs> that seems like a dangerous place to to plant that 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 battle cry. But that's what what this, that's what they may end up doing. And and that I think, you know, if, if you look at to me and this is amazing because I, I, I don't know if I have thought of Mitt Romney as a particularly brilliant tactician in the Senate in his in his career there so far. But at least he's done something that I feel like has some kind of resonance and some kind of traction. And and he put forward the, the, the $10 minimum wage plus the uh, employment verification thing, which, you know, is, is at least a novel way to look at tying this issue, which is obviously a pain point to uh, uh, immigration. What Susan Collins did a, you know a couple weeks ago where she like took this meeting that that Biden was able to make a big deal about saying look my first meeting in the oval office is with uh, a bunch of republicans they read off their draft of what they would do for a bill and Biden said cool dude and that was pretty much it and there was no follow up there was no pressure then put from Susan Collins on the white house that they they expected more traction there it just was kind of there and gone and and if you're not going to hold people's feet to the if you're not going to hold the democratic uh, uh uh senate majority or the white house's feet to the fire on this i mean i i don't blame the democrats keep rolling well, until well, they make well, you the, do something different I mean, collins should know collins is a pro yeah she must know she does not have the leverage here yeah uh i mean what she what she potentially has is to say to biden look you you will need us yes down the line yes and if you seem hell bent on making us pay politically if we don't do exactly what you want then we're going to have to lock arms and try to and try to beat you on the ground yeah so why can't you i mean maybe you're not going to come down 600 billion can you do 1.2 1.3 1.4 i don't know what she has said i would think she should understand she should, should be able to read the room and say hey i know i gotta move closer to you yes you would move closer to me but i'm willing to move and now mind you uh bill cassidy louisiana senator a guy who voted to convict donald trump not too long ago yep was on meet the press and said 600 billion was not our end point he did say that much yes Mitt Romney in his in his Wall Street Journal op-ed does end with, "We are open to compromise." Uh, he he was not saying that six hundred billion was their take it or leave it offer. Now that you may take that as disingenuous, this is just so they can claim they're bipartisan. They can say we tried and they were mean and they didn't reach out to us. Yeah. Could be, uh, but my my point is, a, a Collins should know she has to move off of where she is. And be able to make the case to Biden that it's his interest interest to move to some degree. And I just we know there's been some communication there. There's been reported there's been letters and phone calls between Biden and Collins. We just don't know what has been said, how 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 serious it ever got. We know that Republicans seem to be happy to leak to the press. Biden seems very interested in talking to us, but his staff doesn't. That seems to be, yeah, that's that's the new the new thing is the mean old staff. The mean old right. staff is doing all these mean things. And and Joe Biden is a stately man who really wants to make a deal and and he knows how how the Senate works. And he certainly knows how the Senate works. I, I don't think that there's been 
a politician in the White House that knows how the Senate works as well uh, since LBJ, probably. But like at the same time, Biden knows he doesn't need to listen to these people. I mean, he, he certainly does not need to listen to them to to pass this bill so long yeah. as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and other moderates stay on board. I mean, th- that calculus may that may change, but there was a piece in the Washington Post yesterday about the things that the moderates are concerned about with the House bill. They're pretty minor things. Some of the state local money should be shifted to infrastructure and broadband. You know, yeah. that's a negotiable yeah. switcheroo. Yeah. Uh, it, there wasn't anything, at least as of yet, complaining about the overarching price tag. Um, so until you got to that point, if we ever got to that point, you would think they would find the 50 and, and therefore Biden has no need to bend over backwards for the Republicans in the short term. Uh, so uh, yeah, that, that means most likely that's the path that, that we're on. But it, the only thing that can change the equation is if individual senators who are not operating on political calculation, yeah. just this is what I want and so I feel like talking about, uh, do they change the game in some way? All right. Well, let's let's look forward here to end out on, because after all this is done and, and there is an expectation that uh, it might be passed in the House uh, by, you know, maybe even when this airs on Friday I, or Saturday. I think Friday is when they're shooting yeah, for. Yeah, it's, it's when they're shooting for. So. Uh, this will be done sooner rather than later, or we'll have uh, some kind of spectacular train wreck that, that kind of delays it going forward. But th- you mentioned that there's a lot that goes on past now, and, and it's not stuff that they can do through reconciliation. They are going to need that that G10 because they will be the people that are most likely going to be able to get them to 60 votes in the Senate. Do we have a sense that there is any common thread on some of the stuff that you mentioned before, like immigration. Well, so Mitt, you mentioned Mitt Romney before minimum wage. Mitt Romney has opened the door on child poverty, on minimum wage, and just today on carbon tax. Yeah. Things that he said that he's open, either has a specific proposal, like with child poverty and minimum wage, or he's just musing like carbon tax. Yes. Immigration is something that has had bipartisan support in the past. I mean, the 2013 Senate immigration bill had a good number of Republicans on board. I mean, most of those folks aren't around anymore. Did, did have are. yes, and 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 it had disastrous consequences for well, because that the House the House locked arms and and blocked it. Yeah. Um. But if Boehner, if Speaker Boehner at the time put that bill on the floor of the House, it would have passed. It, it, there would have been enough Republicans who would have broken ranks and voted with Democrats and got that bill passed, because it, a Republican Party that is listening to its corporate donors. The corporate wing of the party is perfectly happy with immigration reform. They they want the labor. Yeah, it's the nativist populist wing that doesn't like it. And now that party is arguably more attuned to the nativist to populist wing yeah. than the chamber of commerce wing. Yeah, but uh, immigration is something where there has been, you know, cross partisan appeal, uh, and you have little indications that. Some folks are open for business and infrastructure, something else where Republicans have shown some interest. Now, I just read today that Democrats think they may not be able to get 10 for, for infrastructure. They may want to do that through reconciliation. Uh, climate, in theory, you could do through reconciliation to the extent things are budgetary. A carbon tax is budgetary. Yeah. Money for renewables is budgetary. Um, you can't do everything you want through reconciliation, but I think it's directly budgetary related. You, you, you could. Now, with climate, it's not just a question of 
stubborn Republicans, you got the Joe Manchin issue staring yes. you at the face. Chair of the Energy Committee from West Virginia, Cole State, he doesn't do whatever Democrats tell him to do on these subjects. And we don't know what other moderates might do to make things complicated. You, you can't assume that Democrats have a hard 50 for everything. Yeah. Because they're a big they're a big tent party with a narrow majority. Uh, so we will find out in short order how tight that 50 is in terms of COVID relief. Uh, if, are, are there bumps along the way in, the, in, the, in this home stretch here? Uh, and this is and that's one of the easier bills. When you get to these other issues, things might get more and more complicated. So they might go the reconciliation path on, on, on some of these other things where they can, but you don't know at this juncture that they have 50 for these big ticket things. And other things like, for example, voting rights, they don't have 50 for statehood right now, DC statehood. No. Uh, King, Cinema Mansion did not support statehood, did not sponsor that bill last year. And the current bill has even as around 40 senators right now. Uh, just to give just to give one example. Uh, so I think there's a lot of negotiation awaiting us. Uh, and that's why you can't assume Republicans get cut out of the discussion because some of those Democrats are going to say, hey, I'm not going to move unless you get at least some Republicans on board. I mean, if we're going through reconciliation, you don't have my vote for the 50 unless I can show to my people them acting in a bipartisan way. If you are a mansion in West Virginia, if you are a tester in Montana, if you are a cinema in Arizona, uh, even Ossoff and Warnock in Georgia, you know, these are these are purple to red states. Yeah. They may not want to go back to their voters saying they had a purely partisan record at the end of the day. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainty how the party is going to move forward for, for, from this point, uh, even if they get 50 for COVID relief. And talk about looking around the corner. There is a ticking clock on all this because we have about, uh, uh, what, maybe a couple weeks after COVID relief before everybody starts to turn their eyes toward 2022 anyway. And at that point, that might be part of the Republican strategy to say, no, make them do everything through reconciliation. Make them do every single thing that they want through reconciliation so we can go in to that uh, election and say, look at what the great bipartisan builder did uh, uh, during his his opening salvo. And it was just rammed through a bunch of Democratic priorities. That's why we need to be back in charge. Well, there's, there's, there's two downside risks for Democrats on the reconciliation strategy. I mean, yeah. the upside risk is, perhaps you can actually pass something and not be held hostage to Republicans. Sure. Yeah. So I, I actually understand that motivation there. Um, you're not giving Republicans a veto over your agenda. Uh, the two downside risks are one, you overreach. Yep. Uh, you, you go one step too far. You, you, you think it's going to be popular and it's having a big backlash. Republicans reap the reward for that. And this is not parallel. This is sort of the other side. You can't get the 50. If you yeah. are a sue, if you're saying, I'm Joe Biden. I promised bipartisanship. I can't really get it. I got bipartisanship in the land, but not in Congress. And I'm going to work with that. But then guess what? Democrats are not in sync and they squabble amongst themselves and don't pass stuff. You now own all of that failure. Yes. The Republicans can just laugh, point and laugh and say, hey, you tried to do it on your own. You couldn't do it. Uh, so again, I'm not saying these are certainties. But there, that's the risk. Like that's the risk. risk. Yeah. Oh, no, that's that's the risk. And it's got to be it, it, it's a major fear, because if you are going to cut the Republicans out, boy, you better get it done, because <laughs> if it doesn't get done, then that is all on your plate. Uh, and and 
for Manchin to scuttle, seemingly scuttle the Neera Tandon nomination. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, I, I hear so many people say, oh, Manchin's just performative. Manchin just does this shtick, like partisan shtick, so he can survive in West Virginia. But at the end of the day, he's, he's, he's a Democrat. Yeah. I'm not saying he's not really a Democrat. Uh, I'm saying just don't assume what's in this guy's head. I mean, he, he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants you can't force him you can't say you have to do things my way because he just doesn't he's in the second most republican state in the country he might even run again he's in the 70s um he may not even choose to run I mean, again that, that, there was there was a real question whether or not he was going to run last time right and, I mean, and, so he, like, and he and he, he waited until the 11th hour you can yeah. switch parties you, know, you can go independent and, i mean and, that's and that's the big that's the big question the big question <laughs> would be whether or not he he uh Oh, oh man, what was his name? It started with an I. Jim Jim Jeffords. Was it Jim Jeffords? No. Well, Jim Jeffords in two thousand and one, fifty fifty Senate, Republican yeah. president, Republican vice president. Yeah. Just four months in, Jim Jeffords was saying to Republicans, "Pass my special education funding bill." They backed out. Jeffords said, "Screw you, buddy. Yeah, I'm going to caucus with Democrats now." Yeah. Now. Again, I don't think Manchin's itching to do that, but no. if the strategy is let's let's put Manchin's head in a vice and squeeze him till he breaks, that may not work. He 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 has a trump card he can play on you. Uh, so I just think the Tandon move is a is a warning shot. Hey, you don't know what this guy is going to do. Yeah. He is, uh, he he is a wild card, and you got to treat him very delicately to make sure he stays on board. I think also. Uh, Cinema's a wild card here too, because I I think she has proven to be a very savvy politician, and if she wants to, never not. I mean, like Arizona has a habit of putting people in the Senate and keeping them there for a really long time if they they tickle that 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 Arizona sense of of, of independence and. She seems like she is like one bold move away from just like cementing herself as Democrat John McCain, which some well, are, which, which well, some that, Republicans well, would say. John McCain from that. Arizona. John yeah. McCain surviving in Arizona as a maverick. Yeah, you may say that was a you know BS branding on his part. Some people don't, don't thought he got away with too much with that framing, but he had certainly that reputation. He stayed around a lot longer than you know Martha McSally did. Yep, uh, and. And, you know, Jeff Flake was trying to be more of a McCain. He only got burned because Republicans in his party, you know, essentially threw him overboard. Uh, maybe if he ran as independent, he might have won, a, yeah, won an election. Jeff, Jeff Flake also isn't John McCain. John McCain, John McCain, I think, uh, understood the ins and outs of the Senate a little bit more than Jeff Flake did. But And so there's a question with some, you know, cinema is, is even more enigmatic to me than Manchin. Manchin at least talks. Yes. Manchin at least gives you some window of what he's concerned about. You know, cinema just gave an interview to Politico where she said, I never preview my votes ever. So to the extent that she means that, like yeah. you just don't know what she might do. Uh, and uh, you know, what she has said is that like Manchin, she's not gonna get rid of the filibuster. She's yeah. not gonna uh, nuke the bird rule. She said, I wanna restore a 60 vote threshold for all of Senate business. Yeah doesn't quite mean that in terms of reconciliation here, but just that she said it not too long ago, just last week. Uh, so she may be, some people think, why is she doing this? Arizona is not that red. Well, it's also not that blue. And she may think she has more longevity as a McCain style maverick. I think that's it. 
That's it. As a partisan Democrat. And so you don't know where she's going to break ranks on you. I think that's. And you might, and you might not know until the day of the vote. And, and that's where I think if you're Kirsten Cinema and you're like, okay, well, does, does, uh, uh, do I have consequences for, for tanking this? The consequence might be I never lose an election in Arizona again. <laughs> like, you know, and, and that's, well, and that's a, you know, that, that's, that's a big possible carrot for her. I mean, the progressives there think she can get primaried, but they certainly don't have evidence that they have that kind of weight yet. Um, Republicans have the weight to shove out Jeff Flake, but yeah. we don't know if the left of Arizona has that same kind of pull. Uh, and cinema might simply, I mean, one thing that I do like about cinema is that I think she's just, just doesn't give an F about anything. Well, she was, yeah, she was, she was creature sweatshirt. Exactly. Yeah. Said, hey, you just can't stop me. I'm going to wear a green wig and you can't stop me. She definitely uh, has her own vibe. That is, uh, that is for sure. And it is certainly kind of built for, for our modern era where we're very bored in the middle of the day and looking for things to talk about <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, one thing that is never boring is speaking with Bill Share. Uh, 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 wh- wh- where, where do you have uh, a writing coming up? Because you are always, you are always working. You're always uh, putting stuff out there in the world. Uh, what, what should we be on the lookout for? Well, I'm, I, I now have a relationship with the Washington Monthly, so I think you're going to see most of my stuff there these days, WashingtonMonthly.com. I developed this relationship with TodayNews.Vote, so I'll have some bi-monthly columns there, and I still have my relationships with Real Clear Politics and Politico. And don't forget the history podcast, Win America Work, which yes. I got the plug on uh, here very recently. Um, uh, th- th- those are not going to be prolific episodes because they're very <laughs> labor intensive, uh, but they're meaty. So check out the pilot about Edward Centinius and the creation of the UN. Uh, my website is shareable.com and you can find also on any of your favorite podcast platforms. There we go. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to talk to you. And that'll wrap it up for us today. And therefore, this week, as always, the best way that you can support this show for free on social media is to let our guests know if they did a good job that you really liked them on here. Uh, uh, this week's guest is, of course, Bill Share. You can find him at B I L L S C H. E-R on Twitter. If you would like to be a part of next week's mailbag, you can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it is at px3tweets. If you want to see our uh, live streams, which happen uh, several times a a week on Twitch, it is at uh, px3live.com. Dot com. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. And if you want to share this podcast with your friends and family, it is px3podcast.com. You can support us in many ways, including PayPal, paypal.me slash payjury, Venmo, uh, uh, Justin-Young-20. Let's see. We did get a, we did get a Venmo. A Venmo dollar. Send me a dollar on Venmo. That's that's our that's our that's our new rallying cry. And I would like to thank Dwight, who reminded me of Dragon Con memories by sending me a dollar. You can also hit me up on Cash App. That is PX3 Cash. And you can send anything you'd like in the mail, including physical checks, to P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. Of course, if you want our exclusive content that is a bonus show on monday a bonus show on thursday 
you uh, need to go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where our Patreon is. That is where you get your custom RSS feed at the $3 level to get the bonus stuff. But if you want your name shouted out at the end of the show, you need to be in the Titanic $10 tier like these smart folks. Headphones, Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Jason, the credit card a-hole, Idris, the government unfiltered podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D-Really? Masoothala Honeysuckle, The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Cujo, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D-Laser, Lord Scale, De Quincey, Enil, the Third. And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Snuffy's off Route 44. Alex. Archie. Olin and Angela. DL, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, Richard, just another pilot. Jim, Frozen, Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. One more time. You want to get that custom RSS feed with all that bonus content. You want to have your name read at the end of the show? The one place to go is takepoliticsseriously.com. That's about it for us today. Oh, merch at politicsmerch.com, including t-shirts of this show, Raise the Dead, both seasons, and more. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Discuss politics. But this is the only program that dares talk about all three. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.